got your Bibles, turn with me back to Romans chapter 8, one of the richest chapters in all of Scripture. If you stand, I'll remind you of what we uh, pointed out. As one commentator said last week, if the Bible is a precious ring, then Romans is the stone on top of the ring, and chapter 8 is the sparkle in the stone on top of that precious ring. Greatest chapters in all of the Bible. Let's read these uh, first four verses again, but uh, I'll continue to read through about verse 9. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life. In peace, because the, carnal, because the carnal mind or the fleshly mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth that sets us free. I pray that you'll continue to teach us by your Spirit to live a life set free because you have already set us free and told us that if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Now I pray that you will instruct us by your Spirit into the truth on how to live free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Last week I was bringing up the, the subject of how cautious men are when they, they get a new pickup truck. I was just looking up a little information this week on what could be the most expensive vehicle one could buy in the year 2013. And uh, I found out that the 2014 Lamborghini no, I hope I pronounced that right. Somebody can correct me later. But you can get one of these cars for $3.9 million. But you better be on a waiting list because they only make three every year. Three every year at $3.9 million. It'll go zero to 60 in 2.8 seconds. Top speed is 221 miles per hour. Not that you would drive one in a NASCAR race, Kent, but it could win if you were so allowed to try to handle it in such a setting. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd want to try to drive one. But as I was looking up that information, I found out, you think, well, that's brand new, that's shiny, that's right out of the factory, $3.9 million dollars. But did you realize the 1957 Ferrari Testarossa, also found out Testarossa means redhead, 1957 Ferrari 
250 Testarossa, one of these cars actually sold at the Pebble Beach Collector's Car Extravaganza for the most a car had ever sold for in 2011. 1957, that is, the, the car is a 57 model sold in 2011 for 16, over $16 million. Now, what would you do if somebody gave you a car like that? Like I would sell it, buy a lot of other things that would be more practical, right? What would you do if somebody gave you a car like that? If something was that new, that clean, that valuable, I don't know about you, but I would be afraid to drive it. I would say, I don't think I can handle that. I don't think I can handle something that valuable. Don't put me behind the wheel of that car. I'll, I'll mess it up for sure. And I think when we learn what we learned last week about there being no condemnation in Christ Jesus, when we realize he has given us a new life, he has not only made us clean and holy in his sight, he has given us a new nature, this brand new life, we are a new person in him, all of a sudden there becomes a little bit of fearfulness about, wait a minute, I can't live this life. That's too nice. That's too glad. I'm not me. I can't handle that. I will mess it up for sure. Well, here's the cool thing about it. God not only gives us this brand new life, but through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, Jesus is saying, I will take the driver's seat. And by the way, that's what the Spirit-filled life is all about. The Spirit-filled life is not about saying, God is my co-pilot. If you've got that bumper sticker, get rid of it. God doesn't want to be your co-pilot. He wants to take the wheel. He is saying, yes, this is too precious, this is too wonderful, this is too valuable, and you're right. You can't live it and you can't handle it, but here's the cool thing. I'm going to take the driver's seat for you. See, it's God's will that we practically live out who we are positionally. Let me just review the first point from last week. We only covered one point. This is a two-point and two-part message. The first part, the first point last week we mentioned was that we are free from sin's condemnation because of Christ's work in justification. We are free from sin's condemnation. The sentence and the accusation that we all deserve because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We saw last week in Romans 8, 1, there is there now for now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has declared us righteous. When we come to Christ by faith, the blood is applied to our sins, past, present, and future. Those sins are atoned for. And we pointed out the need to quit working hard to experience some level of comfort of saying, oh, my, my sin's in the past. And we need to come to a place where we can say with Almighty God who looks at us and, and, and through the lens of the blood of Jesus Christ and say, what sin? Because he has forgiven and cleansed and pardoned me from sin, past, present, future, it's been done away with. I stand holy in his sight. Now, does that view of grace all of a sudden provide us with a license to sin? Let's be reminded of Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? Shall we keep on sinning that grace may abound? God forbid, how can we that are dead to sin keep walking in it? 
That's why it becomes so intimidating. If I've been made clean, I'm holy in God's sight. I say, well, how can I sustain this? Here's the good news. It's not up to me to sustain. I am to yield myself to the Holy Spirit of God who will do the work in me that I could never do myself. So if you come to a place where you said, I cannot live the Christian life, you're in a wonderful place. You're in a wonderful place. You can't live it. I can't live it. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Christ will live that life through me as I yield myself to him. And so here's the second point and what we'll focus on today. We are not only free from sin's condemnation, we are free from sin's obligation because of the Holy Spirit's work in sanctification. We are free from sin's obligation. In other words, sin has no power to make me do anything. Sin, death, hell, the grave, Satan have all been defeated through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I have been set free from sin's obligation because of the Holy Spirit's work in sanctification. Look back at verse 4, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How did that happen? Verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ has made me free, set free from the law of sin and death. To be clear, there are elements in this word sanctification that exist in justification and glorification. Now, some of you have already, you're saying, now you're using theological terms. And your, your eyes are already starting to gloss over. You're kind of, you're, I'll tune him out. He's going to do a theology lesson. But listen, let's be also reminded of what we pointed out last week. By the way, laziness when it comes to biblical theology is, is one reason we're losing an entire generation. We don't know why we believe what we believe, and so we don't pass that along. The whole concept of, hey, pastor, keep it simple, and, and let's not discuss the deeper things of theology is kind of like a doctor saying, you know, or maybe somebody who wants to be a doctor. Hey, I want to be a doctor. I want to help people, but I don't want to go through that uh, that boring anatomy and physiology class. I don't want to learn anything about the human body. Don't bore me with all that, but I do want to be able to be a doctor and help people. Or it's like a man saying, you know, I want to be a wonderful husband, but I don't really want to take time to get to know my wife. To, to be lazy when it comes to these theological terms and theological issues is much like saying, yeah, I want to be a strong Christian. I want to grow close to the Lord Jesus Christ, but I don't really want to study who God is and how he works. And theology is the study of God. And so these are theological terms. Sanctification means to be set apart from sin and set apart from this world for Christ. It's being in the world, but not of the world. Jesus didn't pray that God would remove us from the world, but that he would sanctify us by his truth while we were in the world. So sanctification has to do with setting apart. Now, there is an element of that that happens at salvation where we are set free from the punishment and the condemnation of sin. Justification, when I am justified, it's a good way to remember that word is it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified, never sinned. So I am set apart for Christ and his work at the moment that I am saved glorification, when I get a new body one day in heaven, glorification, I will be forever set apart from the presence of sin. Uh, There will, will not even be the temptation to sin when I get to heaven. Guess what? I'm not in heaven yet. I'm not in heaven yet. So where am I at in this process now? I'm in a place 
where God is doing his sanctifying work, this, this process we call sanctification. Like I said, there's an element that's, a, that's already a done deal that happens when we're salvation. When we're saved, there's an element that will also set us free from even the presence of sin at glorification. But right now, in the nasty here and now, I am being set free, not just from the punishment and, and from the presence of sin, but I am currently being set free from the power of sin. And so today we're talking about this process of sanctification in spiritual growth and maturity where we are set free from the power of sin. Now let me go ahead and and just make this clear. You are already set free from the power of sin. The power for victory over sin and temptation in your life is fully available. Here's what Second Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 3 says. It says, We have been given everything for life and for godliness through a knowledge of Him who called us. In other words, when we got saved, we were given everything in Jesus Christ. We need to live a holy and a godly life before Him. So the power to live in victory, the power for sanctification, the power to live a holy life set apart for the purposes of Christ is already fully available. You say, well, where does the growth come in? Where does the process of sanctification? Where we are growing is not in God making the power available to us, but in us making ourselves available to the power. We grow, as Peter would go on to say in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 17, we grow in grace and in the knowledge of him who saved us. So he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of him who called you. So we, we want to grow in grace, the, the appropriation of God's grace in our life. We want to grow in knowledge. The better I get to know the word of God and the God of the word, the more set apart I'm going to be from the things of this world. And so sanctification as a process is what I'm growing to understand. You're already free. Look at verses 2 through 4 again. The law of the Spirit uh, in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Paul uses that word law often to describe an inescapable principle, like we would the the law of gravity. And so he's saying there's a principle here. In verses 3 and 4, he's referring to the Torah, the Old Testament law, the, the laws God had given for right living. But the law of sin and death is what he had described in chapter 7, verses 15 through 25, when he's in this little dilemma here. He says, listen, I, I want to do the right thing, but, but I can't, and I end up doing the wrong that I don't want to do. That which I don't want to do, that's what I do. That what, what I do want to do, that's what I can't do. And it gets kind of as confusing as I just made it to you. He's saying it's frustrating. Where do I find an answer to that? Romans chapter 8 comes in and answers that and says, he has set me free from the law, the obligation of sin and death because sin seizes that opportunity. It's as if the law functions, if you go back and study Romans chapter 7, the law functions in such a way as if you were to tell a kid, there is a, by the way, this is kind of true at my house right now, there is a cake sitting on the counter. (laughs) If you were to tell a kid, there is a cake sitting on the counter, stay away from that cake. And that kid were to say, I didn't even know there was a cake sitting on the counter. The law that I just gave that child sparked an interest to do something that had not even crossed their mind. 
And Paul is saying that's the frustrating thing about the, even the Torah, the law of God. When it tells me what not to do, my flesh seizes that opportunity and says, let's do it. If he says not to do it, it must be something worth doing. Listen, that lie goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If God told you not to do it, it's because he wants you to miss out on something. That's the way the flesh operates. Now, Romans 8 follows Romans 7 to the point of pointing out that Jesus not only took care of sin's punishment, on the cross, Jesus broke sin's power on the cross. He not only took care of sin's punishment, he broke sin's power. He didn't save you just so you can say, praise God, no condemnation, but I'm going to continue to live like I was living. He saved you and made you a new person to say, not only have you been set free from the punishment of sin, you're set free from the power of sin. Now live or walk, as Romans 6 says, in newness of life. Because you can't do this by taking the driver's seat. You have to yield to the Holy Spirit. When you try to take the driver's seat, you're getting in the flesh. You're trying to do things in your own strength. And so he talks about the futility of doing that in verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, who let the Holy Spirit take the driver's seat, live according to the Spirit, to be fleshly minded is death. You're going to wreck the car. You're going to ruin your life. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it cannot be subject to the law of God, nor can it be, and then... It says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Here's the question. Can a born-again believer get in the flesh? There's an entire book called 1 Corinthians that rebukes born-again Christians who were told they were baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ that had chosen, even after salvation, to walk in the flesh and not in the Spirit. So they're rebuked for their carnality over and over and over again in 1 Corinthians. Oh, they, they, they were doing a lot of things that looked like, you know, operating in spiritual gifts or giving the, the appearance of operating in spiritual gifts. They were often abusing spiritual gifts. They were dealing with carnality, even though he says you were all baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 reminds us that we now have the indwelling Spirit. As a matter of fact, it says that if we do not have the Spirit of Christ, we do not belong to Christ. And so that kind of messes up the theology that says, at some point along the way, I received Jesus Christ into my life as Savior and Lord, but I still need to look for that moment where I received the Holy Spirit into my life. No, if you did not get the Spirit into your life, you did not get Jesus. Now, we'll come back to that in just a little bit, because just because you are saved doesn't mean you are Spirit-filled. But if you are saved, the Holy Spirit does live on the inside of you, and there is a distinction. Now, what does sanctification of the indwelling spirit mean? Let's look at a couple things that, that it does not mean. Sanctification, the Holy Spirit's work in your life, is not sinless perfectionism. Let me explain what I mean by sinless perfectionism. Positionally, I am perfect. My past, present, and future sins, we pointed out in the Scriptures last week, have been taken care of. They are under the blood of Jesus Christ. But why did Jesus have to cover my past, present, and future sins with his blood? 
because he knew there would be past, present, and future sin that needed to be covered. And so we're not talking about, okay, from this day on, you will never sin again in your life. If you go back and uh, look at verse uh, 6 in this chapter, he talks about this, this new mindset. But it doesn't mean that I've been perfected or uh, the appropriation of all of this, that my mind is where it ought to be all the time. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, written to who? Believers. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Why did he have to give an imperative? Because they have to make a choice on a daily basis. Do I want to have the mind of Christ, or am I going to get in the flesh? Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to this world. Don't act like the rest of the world. Don't let the world press you into its mold, but be transformed. How? By the renewing process, by the renewing of the mind. That means my mind should be thinking more like Christ tomorrow than it was today and should be thinking more like Christ today than it was yesterday. That is spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So it's not sinless perfectionism because I've got to grow in it. All the power for victory over sin is already available to me, but I am growing in learning to avail myself to it, to avail myself to the power of Almighty God. Building on Philippians chapter 2, Paul points out in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, not that I have arrived or have already been made perfected. Paul says, look, He says, I'm not, when it comes to practice, positionally, I am as holy as I will ever be. Paul said, when it comes to practice, he says, I haven't arrived yet. He says, I have not been perfected yet. But what does he do? He goes on to say in the next verse, but I press on to the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. God has something so much better for me. So he says, I'm not there yet, but I am becoming more like Jesus tomorrow than I am today. And when we get toward the end of Romans, we'll see that his will and sanctification, God's will, when he saved us and called us, a lot of people talk about the, the, the fact that he mentions predestination there, whom he foreknew, he predestined. He predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. He's in a process of making you and me more like Jesus every day than we were the day before. He's in a process. Positionally, I'm already, if I were to die today, I would stand before God as perfectly holy, covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Practically, I am growing spiritually to become more like who I already am positionally. Now, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't, don't sin is what he's saying. And then he goes on to say this, but if we do sin, we have an advocate. If we do sin, we have an advocate. We should keep short accounts. We should confess quickly. As a matter of fact, that is building on chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Who's John written to, by the way? 1 John, the epistle of 1 John. 1 John five thirteen. These things have I written unto them who have believed on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying, I'm, written, I'm writing this to those of you who have been saved because I want you to understand what you have And so I'm writing this to those of you who have been saved so that you'll understand what you have and that you have eternal life. And he begins this letter to those who have been saved by saying, if we say, if we, he includes himself, that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, here's the thing. Your battle with sin didn't end when you got saved. As a matter of fact, your battle with sin started when you got saved. You weren't even battling sin before you got saved. You were just walking in it. You were on that side. I mean, you, your father's the devil before you come to salvation in Christ. But then when you're saved and he transforms you, gives you a new life, now guess what? You become not anymore an enemy of God, but an enemy of sin and Satan and everything this world would throw at you. And so your battle with sin has begun. Now, it also does not mean, this process of sanctification also does not mean that you are automatically Spirit-filled. As I said, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, but there's a difference between having the indwelling Spirit and the Spirit-filled life. According to verse 9 in chapter 8, I have the Spirit of God living inside of me. The Spirit-filled life is not a question of whether or not the Holy Spirit or it's not a question of or not whether you have all of the Holy Spirit. It's a question of whether or not the Holy Spirit has all of you. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 says, The flesh wars against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh, so the, the two are contrary. But if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And it, it, there's, there's kind of a double negative there in the Greek language. Now, some of you already know that in the English language... A double negative becomes a positive, not so in the Greek. In the Greek, a double negative becomes emphatic. So what he is saying is, it is impossible for you to be walking in the Spirit and living in sin at the same time. You can't do it. You can't make a choice to yield your life to the Holy Spirit of God, let the Holy Spirit work and live in you, and at the same time choose to live in sin. It's just not going to happen. And so that... Filling of the Spirit has to be something more than just being indwelled by the Spirit. I've used the illustration often before, but it's like me inviting you over to my house. I might say, come on into my house today. Uh, I want to invite you over for lunch. But by the way, when you get there, we're going to close the doors to a few rooms because they're a mess, and we don't want you to go in there. And all of you can be in the house, but it doesn't mean you're in all the house. And all of the Holy Spirit that I could ever receive, I got when I got saved because Jesus came to live in my life, live in me through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is when I open up all the doors and I say, listen, it's a mess, but I give you permission to clean it up. And he begins to do a cleansing process that continues in my life. It's, it's pictured even in marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 of how the husband should be leading his wife and family with the Word of God and, and bringing cleansing and sanctification. He says, that's because that's what Jesus is doing in your life and my life with the Word of God. He is cleansing us and making us more like Him every day. In John's Gospel, chapters 15 through 17, we see these promises and these prayers that we would be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, that we would be set apart and different from the world, not taken out of the world, but different in the world. And just as I, by faith... Some of you are going, well, how do I appropriate this spirit-filled life? Just as I, by faith, receive the grace of God to position me in Christ that I might be justified, I also, by faith, I am to live by faith, yielding my life to the spirit of grace that Christ might live through me a life that is holy and pleasing unto God. I have to make a choice to do that every day. 
You see the imperatives in, in chapter 6 of Romans. Just flip back a couple of pages in your Bible. Verses 11 through 14. Likewise, you also... This is after he has said, we have been buried in baptism. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. Now he's saying, put into practice what you already are positionally. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Why does he give that as an imperative? Because it's possible for you to make the choice Just as you made a choice to be saved, it's possible for you to make the choice as to whether or not you let sin reign in your mortal body. When you were lost, you had no choice. You had no power. That's why we we don't argue with lost people over the sins in their life so much. The one thing they need to do first is give their life to Jesus Christ and be set free from the law of sin and death. But he says, we have a choice. We can reckon ourselves dead to sin. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Look at verse 13. Someone challenged me to memorize this as a teenager. It's a powerful verse. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Why? Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. See, grace is not a license to sin. Grace sets me free to live a holy and pleasing life. And I will go as far as to say this. I'm not going to say as a believer you're not in a battle with sin because you are. But if as a believer, or you believe that you're a believer, you continually live in sin without the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then you need to go back and say, did I really, truly give my heart and my life to Jesus Christ? Is He truly Lord of my life? It's been said that, that, that a believer can lapse into sin and loathe it. An unbeliever lives in sin and loves it. If you're living in sin and loving it, then you didn't experience genuine conversion. You would be miserable to live in sin. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no man say when he is tempted, he's being tempted of God, but each one of us are tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires. Again, who's James written to? James wrote his book to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, the, the, the church, the Jewish church that had been scattered because of persecution, to believers. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed and desire When it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, it leads to death. That is a process of choosing to get in the flesh and yield to fleshly desires. Remember James 1.12, that if we stand the test, if we choose not to walk in the flesh, we'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. And so it doesn't mean... The fact that the Holy Spirit is in us doesn't mean that we are automatically living the Spirit-filled life. It does mean that to the same extent you had a choice to receive God's grace and be set free from condemnation, every day you also have a choice to appropriate God's grace to live free from the strongholds of sin. The power, remember, is fully available to us. We grow in making ourselves available to God's power in our life. Anybody see the imagery this past week? 
maybe on YouTube, maybe on the Weather Channel like I saw it, of when they opened the floodgates at Lake Hartwell. How many of you saw that? Raise your hand. A lot of you saw that. Was that not powerful? Whoa, man. Man, I was glad I wasn't fishing in the other side of that dam. Water is a powerful force. And if you find yourself in, in a place like that, you're just going to go wherever it takes you. You're just going to... Some of our folks who went to the Dominican Republic, went whitewater rafting, you said, hey, we kind of learned that lesson. We were in the water, and we were going to go where the water took us. And it was, it was, a power, it was just a powerful display of God's creation. Just kind of, you're there, you, you get in, you just go where it takes you. Listen, that, that's the way sin works in our life. The temptation comes along, the desire comes along. And we have to make a choice every day, not only at the beginning of the day, but often throughout the day. You make a choice when you have a quiet time in the morning, open the Word of God, let God begin to sanctify you by the truth of that Word. You begin to pray. You know the sin that would most easily entangle you that God has told you to lay aside. You pray for victory that day. You yield your life to the Holy Spirit of God who is flowing through you, and by faith you walk in the Spirit, not according to the flesh. But then there's a temptation that you, you see that trickling stream called sin. And here's what we often do. We listen to the lies of the enemy. We say, you know what, I can just get my feet wet. Just going to get my feet wet. Now, it's not that deep. I think I can just wade in this sin a little bit. I think I can just wade in. If I just wade in this sin... I'll, I'll get in and I'll get right back out and I'll get myself cleaned up. Nobody will ever know that I was waiting in a little bit of sin. What does the devil do? The devil waits for us to step into that little stream and we don't realize that upstream he has opened the floodgates. And what was just a little bit just kind of washes up. We, at that moment we are so in the flesh, we have no control. All we can do is reach up like Peter did when he was sinking <laughs> and say, Lord, save me. And by faith, let him get us out of that mess. But often, as you can ask those who kind of turned over in the uh, raft when they were in the Dominican, at that moment, it's hard to think about what you're supposed to do. You're just trying to survive. You're just trying to hang on for dear life. And sin works like that. We don't think about crying out. We, we, we feel trapped. We feel like we've just got to go where it takes us. And here's the good news. In that moment during the day and throughout the day, we also can make a choice to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And at that moment when temptation comes, if we begin to pray, when we begin to seek God for strength, all of a sudden we get into the powerful flow of His Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is flowing in us and through us and overflowing out of us in the lives of others. And the Holy Spirit takes us on a journey with the Lord Jesus Christ, where we say, I can't explain it other than God did that. God set me free. He not only gave me freedom from sin's condemnation, but he set me free from sin's obligation. I don't have to go there. I don't have to listen to that. I don't have to be in bondage to that sin. I can walk with Jesus, give him the will, stop asking him to be my co-pilot and tell him to take the driver's seat. And say, Lord, where you lead me, I'll go. And then get in all that he has for us. See, that's what Paul is saying. 
Don't just live free from sin's condemnation. Live free from sin's obligation. The same cross that canceled sin's punishment also canceled sin's power. And we can make ourselves available to that by yielding to the Holy Spirit of God and His work in our life. You bow your heads with me this morning.